Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Dressed, the history of fashion is a production of Dressed Media. billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dress, the history of fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Dress listeners, all this talk about Gilbert Adrian and his costume designs for the 1939 classic, The Wizard of Oz, got me thinking about the costumes for another iconic production, also based on L. Frank Baum's beloved children's book, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. And while I'm not actually referring to the very first stage production of the book, it is worthy of a mention here first for some context. Just a brief history on The Wizard of Oz, Baum's book was first published in 1900 to great success, and it has the most charming full-color illustrations by W.W. Denslow, who is really credited with the book's success as much as Baum, and Denslow's detailed and playful illustrations, which are on almost every page of the book, arguably did as much to transport the readers to the fantasy world of Oz as Baum's text. Yeah, so it's really together that they created this wonderful and whimsical world we have all come to know and love. Although it must be said that many of us know and love the story, largely thanks to the 1939 smash hit film, which to its credit did look to the original text and illustrations for some inspiration, even if there was a sizable amount of artistic license taken, especially in relationship to the costumes, which begs the question, April, just how much artistic license did Adrian take in his costume design for the film when compared with the book? Well, we already know from our two-part Adrian episodes that Dorothy's famous ruby red slippers are not in fact original to the book, which describes her slippers as silver. So the decision was made to change the color of the shoes from silver to red for the film production as they would pop better in technicolor on the screen. So if you need a little refresher about the shoes in the film, as also in the book, they are a driving plot point with uh, Dorothy acquiring the powerful and magical shoes after accidentally killing the Wicked Witch, the shoes' previous owner upon arrival to the strange land. Despite the change in the color of shoes, however, it would appear that Adrian did stay close to Baum's and Dinslow's original vision for one other central costume piece. As Baum's text originally reads, quote, Dorothy had only one other dress, but that happened to be clean and was hanging on a peg beside her bed. It was gingham with checks of white and blue. And although the blue was somewhat faded with many washings, it was still a pretty frock. The girl washed herself carefully, dressed herself in the clean gingham and tied her pink sunbonnet on her head. So Adrian's designs for Dorothy's white and blue gingham dress is actually based on the original text. 
Yes, and interestingly enough, Cass, this homage to the original text is not seen in the first on-stage production of the book, which debuted as a musical comedy extravaganza in Chicago in 1902, and that was followed by its big Broadway debut in New York City at the Majestic Theater in 1903. The role of Dorothy was originated for the stage by actress Anna Laughlin and has subsequently produced one of the most endearing images in theater history. Publicity stills from this production include a photograph of Anna as Dorothy and the Cowardly Lion played by Arthur Hill in a full-on lion costume that is pretty spectacular. And Cass, let's just say that Anna was not wearing the ensemble that has now become synonymous with Dorothy. No blue and white gingham dress here, folks. <laughs> In fact, she isn't even wearing a dress at all. She's actually wearing shorts. In 1903, which is amazing. This is one of my favorite images. It's so fun. I'll post it. And we talked about this multiple times on the show, but the theater stage was a safe haven for experimentation in dress. And performers, especially showgirls, have always showcased body-bearing fashions on the stage well before it was socially acceptable. Case in point is this image of Dorothy wearing shorts over tights. I should say it's not bare-legged because that would be very scandalous. Um, But she's wearing shorts and shorts would really not come into women's fashion and leisure wear until the 1930s. Yes. And as you said, showgirls cast, um, that is a surprisingly apt description for the chorus of female performers on stage in this production and their archetypal costumes, which was well established by the turn of the 20th century. And these costumes essentially exploited the fashionable silhouette of the period so as best to eroticize its wearer. So we are talking about provocatively low-cut gowns and small, tightly corseted waists accompanied by short flared petticoats that revealed a scandalous amount of leg. And even Dorothy, who is supposed to be a young girl, right, does not escape this costume trope as exhibited by her corseted low neck dress worn while she's in the Emerald (laughs) City. (laughs) And interestingly enough, her main costume in the play, while consisting of the familiar pinafore and dress, dramatically diverges from the text by being red of all colors. And the pinafore is not blue and white checked, but rather white with red polka dots. It's a rather interesting kind of sexually elusive divergence from the original text, no doubt meant to appeal to male audience goers, as are the shorts, obviously. So let's just say we are not in Judy Garland's Kansas anymore, April. No, we were not. Although to be clear, this production predated Garland's performance by 37 years. But it is interesting to see how costume designer Caroline Seidel originally interpreted the costumes for the stage, Balancing Bomb, who was also involved with the writing of the book for the stage production, and also Denslow's vision with the expectations of the grand musical productions of the era. And so this was something that Caroline, um, as one of the premier Broadway designers of the era was central to creating herself. And and dress listeners, Caroline is super fascinating in her own right. She is actually considered to be one of the first, if not the first, costume designer to gain recognition for her profession, working with the era's leading theater impresarios, such as Florence Ziegfeld, Charles Froman, and the Schubert's family, and designing some 58 productions between the years of 1901 and her untimely death of pneumonia just at 40 years old in 1907. So that's only a six-year time span cast. She was designing almost 10 stage productions per year. So we digress. (laughs) 
But we've actually both digressed because the intended topic of our episode today is not this <laughs> original stage production. It's actually dedicated to another stage musical version of Baum's book that also debuted at Broadway's Majestic Theater, although it debuted 71 years later. But except for the similar venue and the Baum-inspired storyline, these two productions could not be any more different. And that is because the show we are here to talk about today is dun, 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 The Wiz. Debuting in January 1975, The Wiz, the super soul musical Wonderful Wizard of Oz, was a fantastical retelling of Baum's beloved children's book that, while very similar in plot and message to the book, was reimagined with an entirely Black cast and largely Black production team and set within the context and, and influence of contemporary African-American culture. And central to that culture is, of course, dress. And our listeners may be most familiar with the 1978 film version of The Wiz, which starred in all-star cast, including Diana Ross as Dorothy, Michael Jackson as the Scarecrow, Lena Horne as Glinda, the Good Witch, Richard Pryor as the Wizard of Oz, who were just some of the stars among many others in the production. But the film was actually based on the smash hit seven Tony award-winning stage production that preceded it. Making its Broadway debut in January of 1975, The Wiz ran for four years and 1,672 stage performances before closing in 1979. But it has been subsequently revived several times, we must say. And the book was scripted by William Brown with music and lyrics by Charlie Smalls, choreography by George Faison, and the direction and costume design were astoundingly both done by Jeffrey Holder. And one Gilbert Moses, as far as the direction goes, but we'll get to that in a minute. And it is the costumes for this stage production to which we largely turn our focus and attention to today. But before we ease on down, ease on down the road (laughs) towards that discussion, how did this production come to be in the first place? And how on earth did the show's costume designer become the show's director? As any theater professional listening to this podcast knows, those are each and and of themselves full-time jobs. And in fact, when producer Ken Harper, who came up with the concept for The Wiz in the early 1970s, first approached Jeffrey about directing the production, there was apparently talks of Jeffrey directing, costuming, choreographing, and starring as The Wiz in the production, which is insane. And let's just say that Jeffrey, as we love to say, was a super talented wearer of many hats. Um, Born in Port of Spain, Trinidad in 1930, Jeffrey's love of dance blossomed from a young age and was nurtured by a loving and creative family whom he credits for his, his success. And apparently his father also instilled in him a love of sartorial performance and display, taking his family on weekly promenades around town in their finest attire. And Jeffrey's older brother, Bob, Bosco owned a cabaret, and it is here where Jeffrey began his dance career as a young boy during World War II. And this is also the place at the cabaret where he was reportedly discovered by famed dancer and choreographer Agnes DeMille, who eventually convinced him to move to New York City to pursue dance, which he did, performing as a principal dancer at the Metropolitan Opera Ballet from 1955 to 1956, before leaving ballet behind for Broadway. And he appeared in Truman Capote's musical House of Flowers, and this is also where he met his future wife, the pioneering actress, choreographer, and dancer Carmen de Lavalade. 
So long story short, throughout the 1950s and the 1960s, he's really establishing himself as a dancer, choreographer, and costume designer. His work with the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater in the 1960s included providing choreography, music, and costumes for the 1967's Prodigal Prince, and he did the same for the Dance Theater of Harlem's 1974 production of His many talents also included acting and pairing in 1967's Dr. Doolittle and one of my all-time favorite Bond characters, Cass. He was the henchman Baron Samdi in the 1973 Bond film Live and Let Die, which is probably one of my top three Bond films. Just saying. Yeah, I was going to say, he's actually very recognizable if you see him. And if you grew up watching the 1982 musical Annie like I did, you'll instantly put a face to Jeffrey's name when I say that he played the beloved bodyguard Punjab. So, yeah, he'd, he'd make quite a name for himself. Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? Because you can, by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this (laughs) hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think think in that language, which is incredible, you learn by immersion. And their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation. So you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 
Uh, But back to the 1970s and The Wiz or the pre-production phase of The Wiz. As we mentioned, when producer Ken Harper initially approached Jeffrey to direct The Wiz, Jeffrey wanted complete control over every aspect of the production, wanting to direct, costume design, choreograph, and play the character of The Wiz, etc. But Ken was not convinced one man could do all of these things, and I don't blame him. (laughs) And so kind of they went back and forth and Jeffrey eventually relinquished his multifaceted aspirations and ended up just taking the sole job of costume designer instead. And Ken hired Gilbert Moses to direct and George Faison to choreograph the production, which debuted at the Morris A. Mechanic Theater in Boston on October 21st, 1974, But by the time the show made its Broadway debut at the Majestic Theater in New York, only a few short months later, in January 1975, Gilbert Moses had been unceremoniously fired, and Moses credits this to serious management and personality conflicts. And Gilbert Moses was replaced by, as you guessed it, one Jeffrey Holder who also apparently did some firing of his own, um, replacing Stu Gilliam, who played the Scarecrow, with Hinton Battle. But he did keep the rest of the cast the same, including the show's star, 15-year-old Stephanie Mills, who as Dorothy packed a powerful alto voice for her 4-foot-11 frame. She was quite petite. And this is where it gets a bit scandalous, dress listeners, because a May 1975 article by Eleanor Lester cites Jeffrey Holder as the whiz who rescued the whiz and credits him with not only saving the troubled production with a, quote, 11th hour rescue operation, but it also credits Jeffrey as the visionary behind the entire look of the production from the beginning. And let's just say this was an idea that was clearly put into her head by Jeffrey himself, who relays in the interview that not only did he come up with the title, The Wiz, after his very first meeting with Ken, he apparently took pen to paper and drafted the entire production. He says, while I saw the whole thing from beginning to end, just the way it should be, the tornado ballet that carries Dorothy away, the yellow brick road, both it should be said are costume designs versus actual actual sets in this production, which is really cool. And then he talks about creating Munchkin Land, the Cowardly Lion, the Tin Man, the Scarecrow, the Wicked Witch, the Emerald City. I saw the whole thing, just how everyone could act and move. And I put it all into 40 drawings in about two hours. According to Jeffrey, his illustrations even helped Ken secure the production's funding from 20th Century Fox, who simultaneously secured any future film rights. And also his illustrations, um, as he told to uh, Eleanor, the journalist referred to earlier, quote, determined the choreography and the choreography was the show. But let's just say that former director Gilbert Moses had a bit of a different perspective. Um, And we know all about this because the New York Times published his retort to Eleanor's story and Jeffrey's claims the following months. And Gilbert writes that as the director of the production from the very beginning when the script was being drafted, he only accepted six of Jeffrey's 40 sketches and that the rest of the key designs were a collaboration between himself, Ken Harper, and the choreographer George Faison. So where exactly does the truth lie, Cass? Who knows? Who are we to say? (laughs) Um, You know, maybe we should just say it's somewhere in the middle of all of this. 
Absolutely. Because clearly as the show's costume designer, Jeffrey, you know, played no small role in the look of the production. And this is something attested to by Andre DeShield, the actor who played The Wiz, who uh, debuted The Wiz on the in the Broadway production, who said that, quote, it was Jeffrey's masterful people skills and embrace of magical realism that metamorphosized The Wiz from caterpillar to butterfly. And this quote is actually from a 2013 article Andre wrote entitled Easing on Down the Yellow Brick Road, A Black Man's Journey to Oz, in which he reflected on the personal and cultural significance of the Wiz. In that article, he writes about the initial difficulties the show faced, which included the cast being faced with a closing notice the same day the show opened on Broadway. And this is something that he credits to poor reviews and a lack of advanced sales. But nonetheless, he writes... Fiercely positive word of mouth combined with an aggressive and innovative television campaign saved the day, and the Super Soul musical went on to make Broadway history, winning seven Tony Awards, including Best Musical, and securing a foothold on the Great White Way for future all-black casts. Let's just say that the show was a bona fide hit, and it was led by a stellar cast who inhabited a colorful, whimsical dreamscape. Quote, the tone is self-mockery with a satiric bite. (laughs) This was from a reviewer for Women's Wear Daily, who also said, quote, L. Frank Baum, out for a night at the Cotton Club, sometimes marvelously outrageous, sometimes hip, always fun. Part of what makes The Wiz so entertaining is that the physical production is dazzling. Another Women's Wear Daily review commented, quote, The Wiz is wonderfully alive with movement. Every one of the familiar characters and this version of L. Frank Baum's perennially Fresh Fantasy has his own way of moving. Hinton Battle as the Scarecrow slides around the stage as if he has no joints to speak of. Tiger Haynes as a tin man made from scraps of garbage pails and beer cans, tap dances. Ted Ross as the Cowardly Lion with a fur-dappled lion suit and a mammoth blonde afro struts to the beat of the band. The tornado that flies Dorothy from her native Kansas to Oz is, of course, a dancing tornado. A chorus in black with upturned umbrellas and tortured dance steps. Even the yellow brick road is a foursome with oversized yellow shoes constantly in motion. In an interview with Women's Wear Daily, the show's star, Stephanie Mills, commented on what set the production apart from its predecessors. And she says, we didn't change the story at all, but all music and lyrics are new. And as we mentioned earlier, the music and lyrics were written by Charlie Smalls, and they're really kind of a mix of rock, soul music, and gospel, which is a far cry from, say, the melodic stylings of Judy Garland. And this is something that Stephanie also addressed. And she said, people keep asking me, how come I don't sing Somewhere Over the Rainbow? But I'm not playing Judy Garland's Dorothy. My Dorothy is me. And The Wiz was not intended by any means to be a version of the 1939 film, but rather Baum's original book told through the lens of black culture. And this is no more evidence than in the costume designs, which paid homage to both contemporary African diasporic aesthetics and Jeffrey's Caribbean American heritage. Case in point, Jeffrey had initially dressed Dorothy in blue jeans for the show's Baltimore debut, but for Broadway, he opted for a white broderie anglaise dress that recalled similar styles worn in traditional Caribbean Creole fashions. And this observation comes to us thanks to Katie Knowles, who wrote an essay for the Smithsonian National Museum of African American Culture, which has seven of the original Broadway costumes, including Dorothy's dress. And Katie writes that The Wiz was a 
groundbreaking tale that, quote, celebrates African-American street style as a unique subculture and an unapologetically American way of life. The song lyrics, script, sets, and costumes all reference and champion the struggles and triumphs of African-Americans. The museum has these costumes thanks to a woman by the name of Lois Alexander Lane, who is the visionary behind the Black Fashion Museum, which Avery Truffleman just did a fantastic episode on for her podcast, Articles of Interest, and it's produced in collaboration with India Hennings. So definitely check it out if you want more info on Lois and her fascinating museum, because it's a really beautiful tale. But essentially... Lois opened the museum around the same time as The Wiz in the early 1970s with the mission of preserving Black fashion history and costume history for generations to come. Included in Alexander Lane's treasure trove of a collection was a dress Rosa Parks had sewn before her famous arrest and several costumes from The Wiz. Her daughter gifted her entire collection to the National Museum of African American History and Culture, where today you can find many of its pieces interspersed throughout the museum's permanent exhibitions, a reminder of the relevance and significance of clothing to culture and history. That the museum has these pieces really allows us a rare and up-close look at the costumes that were instrumental in creating and sustaining the legacy of this groundbreaking production. It's very, very special, and they have fantastic images on their website, which I'll link to. And the seven costumes include the tin armor created from beer cans and other spare parts for Tiger Haynes as the tin man, as well as the black gigo sleeved gown created for Mabel King, who played Eveline, the name given to the Wicked Witch of the West. This costume is especially charming, April, because it has these giant eyes with giant eyelashes at Mabel's bosom. <laughs> and actually, we know from video footage that these eyes blink. She could control the blinking. She had like strings attached. So it's wickedly fun. And the museum also has the patchworked two-piece jacket and dress ensemble in varying shades of blue that was created for Glinda the Good Witch's sister at a, at a Pearl, played by Clarice Taylor. Uh, cast because her costume has to be one of my favorites. It is a floral embroidered pink and nude body skimming gown, um, which was, of course, worn by the character Glinda the Good Witch, which was played by Dee Dee Bridgewater. Um, and it has these four sweeping bell sleeves and kind of like a trumpet flare silhouette to the skirt and it pays homage to the romanticized medieval styles of gowns original to Denslow's depiction of the witch and also contemporary fashions of the period. At one point Glinda is surrounded by a colorful entourage of people wearing body skimming and bearing attire in a bold palette of reds, oranges, and golds. And with the exception of the men's towering beehive wigs, yes, you heard me correct. <laughs> uh, the wigs are fantastic. Yeah, yeah this, this whole <laughs> look is very kind of like 1970s glam meets the whimsy required of any Wizard of Oz production. <laughs> yeah, and speaking of the 1970s, and 1970s fashion, you cannot get more 1970s than the design worn by the Grand Wizard or Wiz himself, who is a bona fide disco dandy <laughs> if there ever was one. <laughs> and the costume is comprised of four pieces. So there's these cream colored like goggled headpiece and this high collared floor length cream silk cape. It's so lustrous. It's lined in green and trimmed with fur and covered with silver sequin stars. And then that goes over a jumpsuit, which features a sequin star on the booty. 
And I'm curious about that because it doesn't feel like you would ever see that. So I'm like, did he put that, did Jeffrey put that there just for Andre's knowledge? Or it's obviously a part of whimsy and play, um, but that's really fun. And of course, no 1970s men's disco ensemble would be complete without white platform shoes. So this costume is just spectacular. And it was actually donated by Andre de Shields himself, who originated the role on Broadway and reprised it several times over the years. And as mentioned earlier, he wrote a fantastic article about what the whiz meant to him, um, who as the ninth of 11 children, quote, grew up a child at risk in the inner city of Baltimore, Maryland, end quote. At nine years old, the enterprising Andre collected pennies that he earned from running errands for his neighbors to spend his Saturdays at the picture show. Um, he goes on to say, quote, this was pure unadulterated indulgence and fantasy to escape the reality of the ghetto and its disproportionate neglect by city, state, and federal government, end quote. And so it was there on a very fateful Saturday that he first experienced The Wizard of Oz on film on the big screen in 1939 and where the young Andre was surprised to identify with the film's heroine. He writes, at my first viewing of The Wizard of Oz, I was able on the one hand to ascribe meaning to my young past in terms other than deficient, inadequate, and lacking, while on the other hand create a positive mental image of my future, all due to the artistic legacy of that film. I saw myself reflected in the character of Dorothy, certainly not in gender, but in her meager environment. And in later interviews, Jeffrey similarly reflected on Dorothy's search for Oz as a universal story of growing up that really kind of transcends racial categories, right, or distinctions. But as Andre also attests to, the Wiz was significant in what it represented. He writes, quote, the bold, innovative, and soulful sensibilities of the creators of the Wiz heralded what could be considered a second renaissance in Black arts, rivaled only by the Harlem Renaissance of the 20s and 30s. And the show's significance as part of a broader theater phenomenon did not escape the notice of the press. In 1975, the New York Times wrote about the year producing a record number of Black-led and produced shows on Broadway. The Wiz was apparently only one of a dozen such productions on Broadway that year, part of an, quote, upsurge of black artistic participation in the commercial theater that has brought a new spirit and a new audience to Broadway. And by all accounts, The Wiz was a huge commercial and cultural success. And Andre writes, quote, in this writer's opinion, that miraculous turnout of circumstances should have won for The Wiz status in the canon of classic American musicals. Additionally, I believe that status eventually would have been achieved if not for the ill-conceived film version. He's not a fan. <laughs> and this film version debuted just a few years after the Broadway show. And I can't, I don't know, April, I can't say i entirely disagree with Andre, who talks about the problems with casting specifically. For instance, Richard Pryor, who of course was a popular celebrity at the time, was cast as The Wiz, but this is a musical and Richard could not sing and he could not dance. Too bad. I haven't seen this in years. I saw it as a kid. Now I have to go back and rewatch. 
Um, also, Andre writes, quote, the most egregious license was the casting of 33-year-old Diana Ross as Dorothy, end quote. And uh, and this, this is because Ross essentially stole the role out from under Stephanie Mills, right, um, who was 15 when she started playing this, this role. Um, and apparently for the film, she was originally tapped to play Dorothy as well. And the only saving grace, according to Andre, was the fact that Lena Horne was cast as Glenda the Good Witch. Um, and in the end, only two people from the original Broadway cast, Ted Ross and Mabel King, would be cast in the film. And that was, by all accounts, a critical and commercial failure, which, without its original creators and actors, um, kind of like was lost its beating heart and soul that contributed to its success on Broadway. And Andre writes again, quote, there were subsequent productions of The Wiz, domestic and international, but not one of them ever equaled, much less surpassed the social significance and timeless elegance of the prototype. Yeah, and regardless of your opinion, the film version of The Wiz does speak to that incredible significance and importance and legacy of the original stage production that continues to reverberate into today. There have been numerous revivals of the show in New York and London, and in 2015, there was even an NBC Live broadcast with an all-star cast, including Queen Latifah and Mary J. Blige. It had costumes designed by Paul Tazewell of Hamilton fame. And dress listeners, you are in for a treat because The Wiz is coming to a city near you, if you live in America, of course, with an all-new Broadway-bound tour planned for 2024. And this is the first one in 40 years. The tour begins where the show made its world premiere 50 years ago in Baltimore. And the costume designer is none other than Sharon Davis, who did just, you know, a little, a couple small films called Ray, Dream Girls. <laughs> so it's sure to be a visual feast for the senses that I, for one, will be attending if it makes it to New Mexico. Yes. So what you're saying, if I'm understanding correctly, is that it's going to come back and end up being back on Broadway? Yeah, I think that's what they're aiming for. Like it starts Ooh, in Baltimore, tours the city, tours the country, and then comes back to New York. Yeah. Nice, nice. I think that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider donning a pair of silver slippers to create your own original Oz magic next time you get dressed. Or you can also just send us an email and say hello at hello at dressedhistory.com. You can also always direct message us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast where you'll find images and reels to accompany each week's episode. And if you want to find the Instagram content specifically connected to this episode, check out the hashtag dressed317. That's dressed and the number's 317. And just a friendly reminder, you can now listen to Dressed ad-free. For just $3 a month, you can ditch the ads and support the show. Um, In your show notes, you will find a link there. And also in the link tree in our Instagram, you can subscribe to our exclusive content, which is the uh, ad-free versions of the show. And it will just show up in your feed just like normal. Also, if you have a moment and would like to take the time to rate and review us on your podcast listening platform of choice, we always appreciate your support. More dress coming your way on Tuesday. Dress. The History of Fashion is a production of Dressed Media. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it 
every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.